0: There could be a pennant clinched to advance to the World Series uh, in a matter of hours. By the time you hear this, we could already have a World Series matchup, depending on when you tune in. If you're lazy and you don't listen until like Friday, who knows, man, maybe we already got the World
1: Series set. Thanks for joining us so late. Jeez. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) good for you. Like, yeah, you know, you're smarter than we are at that point, I guess. Yeah. We we may be knocking that person, but that person also knows more about the world than we do.
0: That's true. That's true. You've advanced uh, past us in, uh, in your knowledge of what is currently going on on this planet, which is, ooh, that's a, that's a dicey proposition. But uh, from a baseball standpoint, things have been fun lately as we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Maughan. Sam Dykstra is my uh, fearless co-host. Hi, Sam.
1: Fearless. I, I do fearless. have fear is. Yeah. I have fears specifically about the show. Too. I have fears about my job. I have fears in life. Not great uh, with heights. Okay. Um, okay. Snakes. Um, snakes are not great. I don't know. what Not to a do snake with guy, huh? Yeah.
0: I did see a snake uh, on a walk with my dog the other day. We lived near this park that has a lake, and there was a like a fairly substantially sized snake. Not like a you know, not like something out of the Amazon, but like you know, it was probably a couple feet long. It was very thin uh and from what i understand it's a colorado snake so unless it rattles it's pretty harmless but i was not expecting to see that and i was like on my phone looked down at the dog and i was like why is the ground moving ah and it was a snake
1: my uh, parents went on a walk over the weekend you know close to my home in massachusetts and my dad gladly put on facebook yeah we found three snakes (laughs) and i wouldn't be like what are are you okay is everything fine and (laughs) did all the research on i can't remember what they were one was a garter snake which is harmless another was like a black rat snake which i guess is also harmless. uh i just i don't know what to do with snakes like you can't yeah they're not fun yeah uh, you can't shoot them not that i carry a gun but like i don't yeah they're uh,
0: i think you just gotta get a shovel man you just you just
1: uh you know see these are things i don't know i have fears that's what i want you all to know out there Tyler might call me fearless. I have fears, or get a club like the Whacking Day episode of The Simpsons. There you go. Sure, you never know.
0: Um, Yeah, having lived uh, in Australia for a little while, I it it got me to a point where I was like, I really shouldn't be scared of anything in the states. Australia, (laughs) everything in Australia can kill you. Everything that moves is designed. To eliminate human life, mostly like the the family that I lived with, the host family that I lived with, um, which man it was. We're recording this on October fourteenth. It was I believe nine days from now. I think it was the twenty third. Ten years ago, that I moved uh, to Sydney to help launch the uh, Australian Baseball League, and. The team that I lived with there, or the family that I lived with there, they had a, uh, a poison spider chart, a spider poison chart where you, if you got bit by something, you're supposed to compare the spider or the type of bite to this chart. And like, I would say like half of the the spiders on the chart were like, yeah, you might die if you don't get to a, a hospital immediately. So between that and the snakes and, you know, kangaroos can just like kick you in the head and you're dead. I, you know, after that, I was like, I can't really be scared of anything here.
1: Yeah, those, those Colorado, Colorado <laughs> kangaroos. Yeah. Because Colorado right, exactly. kangaroos are We're much not really safer. dealing
0: with that. We're not really dealing with that so much. Um, but uh with all that thrilling and insightful baseball conversation, we welcome you into this week's episode of the uh the old show before the show. Um thanks for finding us wherever you did. You can uh give us a rating and a review and a subscription. We are on uh Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and everywhere else you get your favorite shows. I think I'm finally pulling the trigger on uh on that new iPhone they announced today. I think I'm gonna yeah. do it. I haven't gotten a new phone. I looked at, when was this phone really? I haven't gotten a new phone since 2016, which is like, I might as well be carrying around Zach Morris's phone at this stage. <laughs> like It's four years. It's like, how did I make it? Four years of the same phone, not shattering into a trillion pieces and, you know, dropped into a toilet or something. Um, so I think I'm doing it. So I would imagine that that means that the show before the show will sound even better. Especially yes. with my nonsensical lead ins to every segment that we record.
1: And I'm, and you know, barring that agreement we have with Apple and with Tim Cook specifically, right, I think right, it's right, just going right, to right. all automatically be on the phone.
0: He's just mailing me one tomorrow. You can't even pre order them until Friday. I'll probably just get it in the mail tomorrow from yeah. Tim. And Cook. all the episodes will be of the there. Show. <laughs> Big fan of the podcast. One assumes. I assume Tim Cook sits around, just listens to the show before the show all the time.
1: If he does, I have very specific requests, first of which is Tim Cook, come on the show before that. <laughs>
0: Tim good. go on, Chapo. Um, so let's dive in. We got a bunch coming up for you on this week's episode of the show. Michael Harris, the number 12 prospect uh, in the Atlanta organization, who you can find on Twitter with one of my favorite Twitter handles of the dudes who we have interviewed on the show. He is at Money Mike, uh, but he's got three Y's at the end of money and three E's at the end of Mike. Um, Michael Harris will join us coming up in a little bit. Guy who did not get uh, a season this year, of course, is drafted in the 2019 third round. Uh, and one of those guys who you would really love to see in his first full professional season didn't happen this year. We'll talk to him about that and where he is right now uh, with getting into the offseason and uh, or at least close to the offseason. It is instructional league time around the game of baseball. One thing that we want to alert you to, we are starting to roll out our state of the system stories. Ordinarily, this time of year, we'd be uh, firing off our organization All-Stars stories, and obviously, we can't do that this year. So we're going to do kind of a condensed version of that, where we look at where each system is coming out of this weird 2020 campaign. Pittsburgh Pirates story is up right now. We are going in reverse order of records with which teams uh, finished in 2020. So obviously, the Tampa Bay Rays and uh, the, the squads that are still in the postseason, you won't see those stories until well after the playoffs are over. We're starting with the teams. That need to help most from their systems. So the uh, the poor Buckos, uh, nineteen and forty one this year. That story's up on the side right now. Um, but those teams that are still in the playoffs are still getting some pretty big contributions from prospects in the playoffs. As uh, we're recording on Wednesday afternoon, as of tonight. The Tampa Bay Rays can sweep the Houston Astros from the American League Championship Series. Tyler Glasnow will get the ball, I believe, this evening uh, for Tampa Bay. It's not going to matter by the time you listen to this. The game's uh, well done and dusted. So either congratulations, Rays, or uh, game five coming up tonight. Um, the, uh, the Rays have gotten ridiculous production out of Randy Arosa uh, who just continues – Every single time you see him come to the plate to either sting a baseball over a wall or into a gap or something, or put together pretty good at bat, even in the times uh, when he has been out Uh, on the national league side, the uh, NLCS has been uh, an interesting one so far in that Atlanta with a two games to none series lead was dominant through the first 16 innings really. And then yesterday game two got real interesting toward the end. Uh, with that game ending, the Braves led, I believe, at one point eight one, and they ended up holding on for an eight seven win in that game. Coors, uh, and right now it's it's looking as though we may have an Atlanta Tampa Bay World Series, which to me, I think is obviously it doesn't have the narrative and the and the hot takes of uh, an Astros Dodgers rematch, but man, the the level of fun in a raise. Braves world series this year, I think would be off the charts, uh, but the prospects have been really fun to watch over the last couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, that, that's one of the things about this sport. Like if you were to take away names and take away locations and all that, and just were to present like two very fun teams to watch right now, I think the Rays and the brave right now, just speaking right now, the way they've played in the playoffs has been fascinating. The Rays win yesterday. Uh, in game three, just killing you w- with a thousand paper cuts uh, was fascinating to watch. And they've got Randy Ar- Arizarena, who, who Tyler mentioned, um, has been really the superstar of the playoffs, at least from a position player point of view. He leads all postseason batters and hits. He's got 18 of those. Uh, he leads in total bases. He's got 35 of those. He's hitting 462 over his first 10 games. That'll likely change by the time you guys hear that, but that's still crazy. That could conceivably even go up somehow uh, for him. He's hit four homers, one triple, three doubles. I believe his eight total extra base hits lead the major leagues this postseason. uh, An on-base percentage of 512, an OPS of 1.409. The guy has been maybe the most feared hitter So far in these playoffs, Uh, it's been really fascinating to see how teams are trying to pitch him. There have been times when it seems like, okay, he's just hunting fastballs. That's what we need to do. We just need to go with breaking stuff off speed, um, keep him off the fastball. And, you know, I think there was a game where he was one for four with three strikeouts. The one hit was a home run uh, off a fastball. And it looked like he was struggling with the off speed, but every once in a while he'll come around on one. I'm going to save a fact about him for the nationwide prospect fun fact at the end of the show. So circle back around on that uh, to show you just how good he has been as a hitter, but uh, he really has become like the most feared hitter in these, in this postseason to the point where he comes up and you're like, okay, he's almost an automatic hit. Uh, There was even a, a time in game three where he didn't even step into the, the batter's box. I don't think they automatically just, you know, intentionally walked him, which is a thing we do now. Uh, but he didn't even have to get to the plate. They just signaled, no, just get to first, uh, which was really funny. So seeing him turn into that type of superstar is really, really cool. This is only 10 games played. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about this in the offseason and potentially going into 2021. Uh, it's great when somebody like Juan Soto has a great postseason, as he did last year. Uh, and we know he was good during the regular season and, and good for prolonged stretches and took that leap to become a superstar. Randy Ayers arena is acting like a superstar right now, but he doesn't have that sustained success. As we've discussed on the show before he was, he was a late season call up for the Rays, um, And I'm, I'm not ready to put him into the category of, Hey, he's going to be a multiple time all-star. Uh, but if, You had to redo rankings right now. He might be a top 100 prospect given everything that he's showing and what we know he can do against playoff quality arms, which is really fascinating. So um, let's see what happens to to him as he goes a little bit further into this Astro series. And if he has to potentially take on the Dodgers or the the Braves, which no matter who comes out of that series, uh, has had really good starting pitching and really good bullpens. Uh, How are they going to attack him? But that's that's fascinating. Um, Tyler, I know you wrote about this with Ian Anderson uh, the other night coming off his game to start, but what stood out to you about what he's been able to do?
0: Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about last night, especially uh, Ian Anderson admitted and his manager, Brian Snicker admitted. It wasn't that good. I mean, it wasn't his best night at all. He finished, I think, with 85 pitches and only 48 were strikes. He walked five, which was the first time he had done that all season. It's uh, not his career high. I believe he had a game uh, last year in which he walked six. But uh, the the command, it was just a, a battle, as Ian Anderson put it. But even though he only ended up going four innings, also struck out five, only gave up one hit. And did not allow a run. He became the first player in Atlanta franchise history, the first pitcher uh, with three straight scoreless postseason starts. And had he gone one more scoreless inning last night, he would have been just the second player in major league history to start his postseason career with three straight scoreless outings of five innings or more. And the only other guy to do that was Christy Matthewson way back in the day. Uh, I believe that there are six pitchers who have done it in total three straight scoreless starts uh, to begin their career, but five innings or more, only Christy Matthewson has done that. Um, but Ian Anderson, I mean, he's been exactly what atlanta has needed and game two is such a pivotal game in a series because if you go from the the feeling of one one all of a sudden it's a best of five or two oh and you only have to win two of the next five games to make it to the world series it's a pivotal it's a hinge point in a series and and they all are to a degree in a seven game series of course but game two i think is underrated in its importance a lot of the time uh, and ian anderson was was big last night for that team The matchup that he got uh, was against a Dodgers offense that – in game one looked completely befuddled and in game two could not figure him out. They didn't get anything going until late. What'll be interesting to see is how game three stacks up and going forward. And I know there was a question posed to Brian Snicker last night. What's your level of concern now that it seems like the Dodgers have kind of gotten themselves maybe back on track offensively. Uh, Atlanta will turn to Kyle Wright this evening against Julio Arias, who actually will have a a mention of him a little while later in a totally different context. Um, But that was the thing that stood out most about Ian Anderson a guy who, you know, at 22, I think, uh, is still Ian Anderson's age. If you can go out and do that in game two of a National League Championship Series, not of your best stuff, not of your best command, and still battle and put up zeros, that's pretty impressive for a young guy. And that's what Brian, Brian Snicker said uh, after that game last night as well. And also the fact that it came against the Dodgers and everything that comes along with that team and that offense, Ian Anderson said after the win, I think this is something that this will be a moment that I point back to as one of my best memories, depending on how this thing uh, you know, plays out for us. But this one feels like it, it was bigger than the first couple of starts that he had in the postseason. So pretty impressive work from a, a young guy on a staff full of young guys, it feels like right now.
1: Yeah, and the Dodgers, we can't stress this enough, feel like a sleeping giant yeah after going yeah. down 0-2 and you talked about it before with you know, uh, with their comeback last night that fell short but um you know it, they we know that the Dodgers are probably the most talented team left they had the best regular season record uh talent all over the field going down 2-0 it feels like the Braves have all the momentum right now and they very well might um but At any time this offense can turn on and let's say Ian Anderson makes one more mistake last night and we're talking about a nine, eight ball game instead uh, of an eight, seven, one in the Dodgers favor. So like we've always said in this segment so far, by the time you guys hear this, it could be two, one Braves. It could be two, two for all we know, but um, for Ian Anderson to do this in a lineup that has Mookie Betts, has Corey Seager, uh, has some of the best bats in all of the national league and to turn it over as well as he did and just basically pass the baton, survive in advance, get them through those four innings uh, in his toughest outing yet was really special to watch. Uh, and we'll see if Kyle Wright does that as well. I mean, Kyle Wright's been one of the surprises of the postseason for me. Uh, we were talking about rookie pitchers last week and I forgot to mention him and people brought that up and thank you for doing that. And thank you for listening and pointing out my mistakes when I forget somebody. Uh, But Kyle Wright seems to have really put things together at last for this Braves club at a time when they really need that third starter. Uh, There were questions about the rotation coming in and Max Fried and Anderson answered those. But if they have another solid starter in Kyle Wright, uh, first round pick from a couple of years ago, somebody everybody thought coming out of Vanderbilt was going to be very well advanced, but really hit a wall in the majors uh, seems to be turning things around now. That would be huge for not only their prospects here in the NLCS, but of winning the whole dang thing because they get some pitching with what Freddie Freeman's able to do right now, potential NL MVP this year, what Ozzie Albi seems to be doing with the power and Ronald Acuna still being around is really special. And let's just throw out real quick, Christian Pache now taking on an even bigger role for that Atlanta Braves team yeah. after Adam Duvall went down with an injured oblique uh, Christian Pache getting to run in that very, very big, Texas outfield uh, which is perfect for him he's going to do some things we've talked a lot on Twitter about the Rays defense right now and how it seems like they're always in the right position and Hunter Renfro made a couple really good catches Christian Pache is going to do some things in center field or in left wherever they decide to play him he's best in center uh, that aren't going to look spectacular but that's because he covered the amount of ground he got the great start to just get there in time and That's going to be a huge boon for these young arms that the Braves have with the uh, more veteran types in the bullpen. And even if he's not making sliding catches, know that Christian Pache is going to have an impact defensively at the very least in this NLCS and potentially beyond.
0: Another uh, pretty amazing fact that came out of that game last night, Christian Pache became the youngest starting center fielder in Elite Championship Series or World Series uh, since Andrew Jones did it for Atlanta back in 1998. That's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is uh, both those guys, 21 years old, that was Andrew Jones's third straight LCS or World Series as a Starter in center field for Atlanta he started doing That at 19 Andrew Jones was hitting Multiple game multiple homers In a game in the World Series In 1996 at 19 Years old so it was like yeah it's Andrew Jones but also he was already like a three Year big league veteran by the way. Just <laughs> Ridiculous ridiculous people You kind of forget um, Just what a phenom he Was I mean his first six eight Ten years in the big leagues Andrew Jones was a sure fire hall of famer and then just fell off and uh you know it's he's had a very interesting baseball life he was actually a a member of the uh he of course is from curacao famously he was a member of the netherlands coaching staff last year for a tournament that i worked on and um got a chance to work with friend of the show before the show jp morosi and uh jp and i hensley mullins is the manager of that team and andrew jones on the staff and jp knows everybody so got to meet them and you meet andrew jones and it's like I mean, you could still play today. He's like 50 now. You could still play. He's not, a, he's not 50. He's like 40. But uh, pretty impressive dude, Andrew Jones. Uh, and, and that's Pache, the skill set. You know, Sam tweeted last night about his, his speed tool. Um, the things that he's able to do, he is a very dynamic young performer. And it just seems like Atlanta churns those guys out and year after year that team's coming up with him.
1: Yeah. And just to note that Drew Waters still has yet to do right? you. We thought he was going to be a potential 2020 debut. Maybe in a regular 162-game season, we would have seen him. That that didn't work out. But, yeah, being able to see Ender Inciarte, who at one point was one of the best defensive center fielders in the game, he, his career has kind of taken a nosedive. He wasn't on the NLCS roster. Basically got replaced by Christian Pache in the depth chart. Um, but to bring up Pache like that and, and not skip a beat defensively, Uh, And we'll see what happens offensively, but he can impact the game with his speed on the base paths. He's not exactly an aggressive base runner, uh, at least when it comes to stealing bases. And I know Ron Washington actually got on his case about that, about how the Braves are a team that we're going to push the envelope. We're going to try to get aggressive with that stuff. And he needs to start doing that himself. Doesn't have the greatest track record of that in the minor leagues, but the skills are there. Uh, And him and Acuna in the same outfield is, is really special. And, Right now, they've been playing Nick Markakis. I know uh, as of right now, Austin Riley is going to be playing in left uh, tonight. So they have some other outfield options. Um, not as quick as either Acuna or Pache. But, uh, yeah, being able to plug him in when somebody like Adam gets goes down it is uh, something special. And, and also a credit to the Braves that they have somebody like Pache ready to go.
0: And our final point of our opening segment on this week's episode of the show before the show, we told you earlier, our state of the system stories have begun to roll out beginning with the Pittsburgh pirates Uh, that this is how we tie things up in a nice little tidy bow, the magic of radio. Uh, That was kind of a tease for the fact that the major league baseball 2020 first year player draft will also be in the same format. Not for you, Astros. Uh, but the Pirates will have the first pick in the draft, and it will fall behind them in descending order of uh, record, or I guess ascending order of If you were bad, you get a better pick. We'll put it that way. <laughs> the Pirates will pick first. Followed by the Texas Rangers, the Detroit Tigers, the Boston Red Sox, the Baltimore Orioles, Arizona Diamondbacks, Kansas City Royals, Colorado Rockies, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and uh, and the New York Mets. Those are the top 10 selections. There will only be 29 first-round picks, of course. The Astros will not have their first-round selection. uh, Lost it in 2020, as well as 2021 as part of punishment for the sign-stealing scandal. Um, But this is... uh, we're in a, a spot right now where you're not really sure what the 2021 draft is going to look like, um, nor the 2021 high school or college baseball season. Uh, but at least there is some. If you if you're the Pirates right now, you know you're on the clock.
1: Yeah. No. And that that was kind of. Uh, uh, I'm glad we got the uh, question answered now because the longer that went, it was definitely going to affect scouting decisions um, as, as fall ball kind of begins for some of these college programs if they are going to have some sort of fall ball uh, scouting that scouting trips for other places. Uh, It's good to have this established. There was some question about it. Normally we're not talking about the draft order in October because we know what it is year in year out. Uh, Part of the agreement that allowed the 2020 season to happen was that, you know, the commissioner could set the draft order in some way he saw fit Uh, for 2021. There was some question about, well, is it going to be in reverse order? Are we going to combine records between 2019 and 2020? That's what I kind of thought was going to happen. Having an entire draft order decided by a 60-game season rather than a 162-game season feels a little off. Um, But the way things work this year is the Pirates, it was a really down year. I have no doubts that it would have been a down year for them over 162 games as well. Maybe Key Brian Hayes could have really helped them uh, win a few more games maybe they don't end up in the cellar uh, but basically they've won the Kumar Rocker sweepstakes sweepstakes that's he's the consensus number one maybe something weird happens he is a pitcher pitching injuries happen uh but he's been a superstar ever since he stepped on campus in Vandy uh in those first two years he'll get a third spring this time if college baseball is able to be played we know this stuff is there uh if college baseball can't be played, that's honestly almost going to help him just because we've seen him a lot and we know how his stuff is going to work. Um, whereas of like a high school senior or somebody who like, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, who was real pop-up prospect. The example I'll give is Andrew Benintendi, um, who was kind of a pop-up prospect in his last year before he was drafted. Those guys are going to be the ones hurt, but Kumara Rocker going to the Pirates seems like it's going to be, all but guaranteed. Um, then looking at the pirate system right now, they don't have that real true ACE potential in the system. I would have really liked to have seen Brendan Malone, what he could have done in a full year in a pirates uniform. Uh, Quinn Priester was their their first round pick a couple of years ago. What would have happened to him? Um, that could have been something. Mitch Keller graduated. He hasn't really been that guy at the major league level that maybe they would have hoped, uh, but right now, their strengths are at the position player, Nick Gonzalez, they drafted this year, really excited to see what he can do now that he's out of New Mexico State. Uh, how much of that was inflation of numbers from there? Or was it, you know, the guy who was really, really good at, on the Cape? Uh, how well can he carry that to the pro ranks? But adding somebody like Kumar Rocker, that is legit superstar potential and the type of pitcher that turns around a system. Uh, And potentially moves quick. I mean, he's, he's coming from Vandy. We talked about this before with Kyle, Wright. Kyle Wright did kind of move quick through the brave system, then stalled out, but Kumar rocker could do that as well with the Pittsburgh pirates. Uh, Really looking forward to see what the Rangers do at number two. That's much more up in the air. Uh, The Rangers right now, kind of the same thing. I think they're a little position player heavy. Do they consider an arm? They're definitely going to go for the best player available. Don't get me wrong. Um, But how can they kind of improve that system will be fascinating. The Tigers getting another bite at the apple with a top three pick. Um, it seems like they've done pretty well. Casey Mize a little disappointing this year in the majors, but we still think a lot about him. Uh, Spencer Torkelson, they got it number one overall this year. It didn't seem like that was much of an issue for them or, or a pick. They're going to be thinking about twice for a long time. They get another top three pick here. How did they add? to that mix will be fascinating. And the Boston Red Sox at number four, gonna be watching that very closely. Uh, they surprised everyone by taking Nick York this year. Nick York was not a consensus first round pick. Um, the Red Sox didn't have a second round pick. So they really, I thought they were gonna have to get aggressive with the first round pick. They decided not to do that. They're aggressive later in the draft by getting Blaze Jordan. Now they have somebody, they have a chance again, Uh, to pick somebody who could be the the face of the system right now that's Jeter down. who they got uh, from the Dodgers in the Mookie Betts trade. You could also make a case that Tristan Cassis is that guy. Bobby Dalbeck is still technically a prospect, even though he uh, impressed a lot with his power this year in the majors. Um, So who the Red Sox clearly in a rebuild right now um, to a point where they traded arguably one of the three best players in the sport. Um, So they do that to get this pick. Now, what are they going to do with it? That's all stuff we're going to talk about coming into June, but now that we know the draft order is set, we can start thinking about these things and and what is the next step for some of these farm systems that A are either rebuilding or B could really use the help uh, like the Red Sox system right now, they could really use that help. So we'll see how things go, but uh, good to know this order for now.
0: So with that, we will talk with a guy who was just through the draft process last year, a little bit more than a year ago. Michael Harris, the 12th ranked prospect in the Atlanta organization, joins the show next.
2: This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com.
0: Well, we are headed to uh, one of the four remaining alive organizations in the MLB postseason, and Atlanta is—or uh, the Atlanta area, the state of Georgia—where we find the 13th ranked prospect in the Brave system, outfielder Michael Harris, the second. Michael, what's going on, man? How's things?
3: Uh, I've been good. Just got back from instructs. Had a great, great year at the alternate site. That's basically it.
0: This instruct experience for you guys this year is a little bit different, and we'll talk about that here coming up uh, in a little while. It's obviously been the weirdest year for uh, anybody and everybody. But tell us about, uh, from your perspective, it's kind of how we've been kicking off these interviews for the last, you know, now seven months. When you were – in-spring training getting set and ready to go and then all of a sudden everything gets shut down um, before summer camp and the alternate training sites and all of that what what were you doing I mean how did you kind of try to figure out a way to make it through April and May and June and all that
3: yeah that was crazy because this off season, well last off season, I felt like I did everything I needed to have a great season for 2020 and to hear the news that we had to go home really it was really heartbreaking but I knew once we got back home I had to continue working and not take my foot off the gas cuz I knew at some point there would be something we'd be doing and we ended up doing the 60 man alternate site so I'm glad I I kept it going and kept working hard
0: when you are going into your first full pro season, I would imagine that the the excitement level you get to go to spring training for the first time. You're going to get assigned to a a minor league affiliate and probably go. I mean, you made it to uh, to Rome by the end of your debut season in 2019, so you're probably headed to a full season affiliate. You're going to get that opening day experience. And then all of a sudden, everything's put on hold for you from an emotional standpoint. What was that like? Cause I would think the excitement for somebody in your position is probably higher than maybe anybody else in baseball, you know, in March when they sent you guys home, what, what was that immediate feeling like?
3: Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I felt like I was let down cause um, we were just days away from opening day and I felt like I was ready and I was, I was really ready to get started for this year, but um I, I mean, I knew it was just something we had to do for the safety of players and everybody around us. So I wasn't totally mad because I knew at some point we would come back or do something um, to replace the season. But uh, I wish I would have got to have a full season this year, um, more than likely starting off in Rome, and just getting a feel of what a full season in pro ball feels like.
1: Yeah, and, and this is another question I feel like I'm asking guys a lot recently is, uh, how do you envision how t- 2020 would have gone for you in a
3: normal year? I feel like it would have been a pretty, I wouldn't say it would have been a great year. I would have felt like I would have had a pretty good, decent year. Um, put up decent numbers. Just try to be the, the person I know I can be and just go out there and play hundred percent every time and have fun.
1: And one of the things that did happen to you this year is that you got added to the Braves player pool. I know everybody or every organization had kind of a different philosophy on how they wanted to treat the player pool, but the Braves added you again, a 2019 third rounder pretty early that it was in middle of July. Um, They had you around for a long time as well. Just, Take us through that process of how you found out you were going to be at the player pool, what summer camp was like, and then what was it like being at technically the alternate site uh, for much of the summer?
3: Yeah, I was honestly really uh, surprised to get the call there early to go. Um, But being there, I I really learned a lot, and I feel like I got way better, especially facing some of the guys that came down from the big league team from injuries or just getting sent down. And especially having a chance to play in the two exhibition games against the Marlins uh, right before the season kicked off, uh, it was a great experience. And I really learned a lot from those two two games and just being at the opportunity side period.
1: And what were the biggest lessons you took away from that, especially from those two games, uh, you know, exhibition games against the Marlins, because it's, it's one thing to be kind of a non-roster invite to spring training and, uh, you know, playing in the big league park at spring training, but this is another thing where it's legitimately the big league park. And especially you being a Georgia kid, I'm sure that meant a little bit more. But what did those two games mean, and what what lessons did you learn from them?
3: Um, it meant it meant a lot to be able to play with the with the team that I want to be with for a good minute. Um, lesson I get away from get get from it is uh, just never give up. You always have your chance if you. Show at the right time and just uh, keep your head, keep keep your head on the uh, swivel and stay focused. Uh, never lose track of what dreams you have set, and anything's possible.
0: Michael, one thing that the Atlanta organization does so well is identify talent uh, in not only the the Southeast and in that region, but especially in the state of Georgia. And for you, you get to start your career, you know, you go to the GCL, but then you're in Rome, which is within, you know, I think an hour, maybe an hour and a half of Atlanta, obviously depending on Atlanta traffic Um, to, to have that as an opportunity you how cool is that I mean a, a chance to you know like being in a an area that's so close to home but so familiar also when you're getting started in your pro career I would think that's a pretty awesome asset to have that everything still feels so much like home it's not like you got shipped off all the way across the country to go play somewhere else what was that like
3: yeah it really did feel like home my first day there I had a good amount of family members and high school teammates that came uh they were chanting like I've been there the whole time like they Never missed a game. Um, I really felt comfortable and at home because of them. And to be near home, I feel, I don't know, it just feels much better than having to be far away. You know, your family can come watch you, you have that support system at all times.
0: What's the best thing? Like, can you get a home cooked meal? Like if you call home and you're like, hey, I need somebody to make this for me and bring it out that or like you're around all of, I would think the places that you like going restaurants and stuff like that, like that's got to be pretty great too. It's kind of clutch to just be able to have, you don't have to figure out anything new. You can just be in the same routine. I'm just eating. I'm a, I'm a food question guy. This is a very important thing to me.
3: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I did. I did go home on the off days and have a home cooked meal. Uh, but other than that, I'll just eat at some of my favorite restaurants at the field. So yeah, having that home cooked meal really was it was great.
0: <laughs> you are uh, a third round pick, and uh, you get to go right in to get started in the GCL, and then you make that jump toward the end of of the 2019 season. When you look back on, let's go with the draft process first. When did you kind of first know, you know, in your high school career, like, A, I've got a very good shot to be drafted, but B, I've got a really good shot to be drafted, you know, in the first five rounds or whatever it is. Like, when did you start getting that feeling that this is something that you might be able to go? I know you were committed to Texas Tech as a two-way player, but you all of a sudden that gets thrown into the equation of like, man, I might just be able to go do this right out of high school. When did you know that?
3: Uh, Well, when I first thought well, – when I first knew I had a chance to be drafted, period, it was probably late, 11th grade year. Uh, That's when most colleges start rolling in and Pro Scouts were communicating with me. And I really knew uh, that I had a chance to go – well, I didn't know I had a chance to go third round until probably a week before. Um, wow. It's really a blessing because at first I was mostly known as a pitcher. Then coming into high school, senior year, I kind of brought it to an even standpoint of hitting and pitching. So it was kind of a difficult position, for the decision. So uh, scouts would always ask me which one I would prefer. And I, would, I wouldn't lean more towards either one. Hmm. I would always tell them whichever one would help your um, organization the most. That's together. a smart way to go. But, uh, that championship and I mean I always felt like I would have more fun being an outfielder playing every day instead Mm -hmm. of having to wait every five days or coming out of the bullpen so yeah I'm really glad that I got to go the outfield route because I like to compete every day and play every day
1: and uh kind of along those lines being a former two-way player uh how would you scout you know, Michael Harris, the hitter, if you were the pitcher, how would you pitch to Michael Harris, the hitter? And if you were Michael Harris, the hitter, how would you approach going up against Michael Harris, the pitcher?
3: <laughs> I was, I was asked that question multiple times at like home visits. And I still have no answer. I still don't know how. I do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, that's probably the toughest answer. I mean, question I've ever been asked honestly about myself. Cause I still have no idea how I would go about that bet or, the situation
0: i also love i also love that everybody asked you that because they were like well if we don't get you we have to figure out how to get you out or how to get a hit off of you Like that was that was just teams (laughs) trying to figure out down the road man if we have to face this guy what are we gonna do
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i still don't know
0: when you decided that you were gonna go to to school for it um you know, obviously before all the draft stuff and all that, that's such a different road right now collegially. What was the the conversation with college coaching staffs like where you could kind of assert, like, hey, I know I can do this both ways. How did that conversation go?
3: Most of them – most of the schools, 90% of the schools wanted me to be two-way. So uh, I feel like they believed in me as much as I did in myself. I don't think it would have been a problem with them – most of them said I would be pitching on a certain day and then the rest of the week, you know, be in the outfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel like most of any school I went to had the same amount of trust and me that I had in myself.
1: And during this whole process, I know you said you didn't feel like you were going to go in the third round until about a week before, but I'm sure you, you still notice scouts around. Like you said, you got plenty of home visits. At what point did you realize – like the Braves were an option and being a Georgia kid, did it mean a little bit more to see like a Braves hat or a Braves polo in the audience or, um, you know, what was your approach knowing that the Braves had at least some interest there?
3: Well, I didn't, at first the Braves weren't really heavy until the week before also uh, when I did the workout at SunTrust and I mean yeah being a hometown kid that's why i took the opportunity to come here uh i knew it'd be close to home have a good support system and i mean with either with either team i still would have been myself and worked hard and just had fun playing the game so why not do it here
1: No, for sure and and we're getting you at at a special time in the organization we're talking uh wednesday night so it's not the greatest Braves postseason game of all time. But um they got off to a 2-0 start here in the, in the NLCS two wins away from the World Series. How do you watch Braves postseason games now knowing hey this is a pretty cool opportunity for my local team but also I'm a part of this organization now. Like does watching a game change for you now?
3: Yes, watching the games I'm still I still watch it like I'm a fan. But I also have to watch it as in I'm in the game in the same situation. So, when it comes around later in life, I'm not surprised by the situation. So, yeah, I just that's basically how I take it. I still watch as a fan, you know, cheer, but I still, you know, try to see what players do in certain situations, what pitchers do, uh how how they play players and defense and stuff like that. Is there an example of that that
1: you can think of like you were watching, like Christian Pache is a prospect with the the Braves right now, who got who's getting an opportunity in in this NLCS. And um, somebody, you know, you got to see a little bit at the at the alternate site, obviously. Um, has there been any times, either with him or some of the out other outfielders, that you can specifically m- remember thinking, "This is how I would handle a situation"?
3: Not really. Yeah, I don't really have an example right now. Uh yeah, nothing running across my mind right now. But we had felt like I had a good display of what happens at the alternate site. Um we had a good amount of big leaguers down there that um really really are good, they great players. Uh we had Nick Marquez down there for a bit. Uh Izzy came down for a day. Um Charlie Coberson came down name, uh, Camargo. So I really, I really got a chance to see what big leaguers do in certain situations and how they go about certain things. So I really, I really learned a lot on that aspect of the game.
0: Michael, your position group with Atlanta is so talented. And and obviously, you know, at the major league level, the names they've already been able to run up there, Christian Pache last night getting that nod. Um, But, you know, you're in a system that also includes Drew Waters and has graduated so many of these guys in recent seasons and has been so talented. Um, What was that like in, I guess, mostly in in spring training, but even to an extent, the alternate training site, being around so many other guys who play your position that you can kind of bounce stuff off of and learn from. um, That's got to be kind of cool to be, a guy in a room full of other guys who are, you know, extremely talented and also have really high ceilings too, rather than just being somebody who you're the guy in a, a room of other guys who are kind of filling in around you.
3: Right. Uh, those, those two waters and Pache, that was my first time meeting them and actually being around them on a the field uh, at the alternate site and being around players that are that highly respected. It, it really makes you better as a person and a player. Just seeing what they do and learning from them. And uh, just taking what they do in their game and try to put it into what you do to make you a better person and player.
1: And um, yeah, was there anything specifically you saw from them that's like, oh, this is something I need to implement in my game?
3: Well, yeah, I've talked to Waters a bit. We talked about certain things. Uh, he has a certain approach that makes him such the great hitter he is. And Pache has great defense where he sets up and gets reads off the bat. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what I took from that. And this great organization with the coaches we have. Learned from the coaches as well. So that's basically it. Ah, oh, fair.
1: And uh, one thing, uh, we've interviewed some guys who are at the alternate site, and sometimes, you know, guys who would have been at A AA or AAA, and we asked them, like, did you feel close to the majors you're closing in? Sometimes we shied away from that. But we had an interview with like Ryan Weathers, who had only played at Class A, and then the Padres called him up for the postseason. So, even though you're only you know still uh, fairly young, I'll ask you the same question: Did you ever actually feel close to the majors this this year at the alternate site?
3: Honestly, I mean yes, but no at the same time. Um, I would say. I say no because how stacked uh, outfield is and I mean it had to be a lot What would have had to happen for me to actually go to the big leagues this year um, I mean there was always a chance anything is possible but I like I said I always stay ready uh, do what I do and the situation will never like slip up on me if it ever happens.
1: And developmentally speaking, between the alternate site and instructs, and I'll get to instructs here in a second. But um, you know, this could have easily been a lost year for you, but you got to make up some some at bats and s- some defensive reps in those settings. How do you feel like you developed this year? Like, how are you a different baseball player now than you were this time last year, or even in the spring?
3: Uh, I got to face a lot of a lot of big arm pitchers, Um, and that really, that changed my mindset in the box, and it made me a better player. Uh, Being able to read balls off uh, hitters that have been in the big leagues and do a lot of damage up there. Uh, So that helped me defensively and offensively. And last year, you know, in GCL or in uh, low A, you don't really get to see that same type of talent. Uh, so that's really how I improved this this summer, this summer camp, and I'm just going to take that with me into next season. And jumping
1: back to the, the GCL and your time at Rome, uh, I know the GCL doesn't really have fans, but at least Rome does and the South Atlantic League does. Uh, that was your very brief taste, only 53 games of minor league baseball, but how much of that small time last year in 2019, did you need to sustain you going forward to 2021 when, you know, knock on wood, we'll be able to get games going again and maybe you'll be at, at high A or start out at, at, again at class A. But, um, you know, how much of your time at Rome and the GCL d- still sustains you now in terms of getting back to regular season games that kind of matter?
3: Um, All of it is always going to be good work. No matter the time or level, I mean, because anybody can do it at any point in given time. So I felt like when I got to Rome, I was just one step closer and I had to, like I said, stay, um, stay motivated and keep working to get to the level I want to be at for a long time. And
1: let's let's go through instructs here real quick. The a lot of teams are still going through instructs right now. Some of them are in Florida, some of them are in Arizona. Some teams aren't even having instructs. Um the Braves had them but were a little different in that you guys got sent to Gwinnett instead of going down to Florida. Uh take us through what instructs looked like for the Braves this year.
3: I say it's a, it feels like an extended version of the Alternate site. Uh Basically the same thing. We did scrimmages against each other, basic defensive drills, VP, uh one-on-one instructional things. And yeah, that's basically all we did.
1: So so what was it like going from the alternate site roster where you were kind of the young guy and trying to soak up as much as you can to instructs in which it was a couple new faces at the very least to a guy that you had been comfortable with. You had been around that facility, like you said, it was an extension of what you were already doing. Do you feel like your role changed between those two spots?
3: I just, I felt like it did. I felt like I was expected of more and to like be a leader and show what was supposed to be done since being at the alternate site and having new faces come in. Uh, so I felt that way, so I took that as a as a role and i stuck with it the whole way through
1: fair enough and how did that kind of manifests itself like were were you showing guys around gwinnett were you sh- trying to tell them no this, this is what we've been doing the past few weeks like how do you take on that leadership role
3: yeah basically um we'll do a drill and if they're a little confused about the drill that we do uh, i would just show them how we did it or what's supposed to be done or i do show them around uh, tell them where everything's at, how to get to somewhere, who to ask for anything. Um, basically, things like that, the little things.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, and, and uh, t- this is now going to be your second offseason season. It's probably not going to be anything like your first off season in terms of preparation and in terms of what spring training is going to look like and what the season is going to look like. But what do you feel like is the next step for you developmentally? Like, what are you going to be focusing on so that when you do show up to spring training, whatever that is, uh, you know, you're going to be ready to go and, and taking the next step in your career?
3: Uh, I always want to get a little strong and a little faster. But basically, for spring training, I just I just want to be in shape for spring training. Don't want to be out of shape, and I always want to be ready to go at any point, in any any given time.
1: Especially offensively, what do you feel like you you were able to take from this year? I know going up against certain pitchers, Ian Anderson, the guy who's dominating the the playoffs right now, was at the alternate site, um, and Tucker Davidson and some other big names there as well. Um, but what do you feel like is the next step? developmentally for you offensively and in the box?
3: Um, I had a I had a lot of good battles against them. Uh so I feel like we made each other better. So I mean I'm just gonna take what I did in alternate site and take it in the next season. And hopefully I should be I should be successful just based off of the alternate site and the people I face. And yeah, just take that into twenty twenty one with me.
1: Cool. And and we'll end on this one, Michael, Um, you know, being a local kid, like we said, being around Atlanta, uh, there's going to be a lot of people following your career, obviously. But also, if you were to make it to the Major League Club, there's going to be a lot of kids in that area who's just like, well, it's, you know, he's living out the backyard dream that we all have for ourselves when we put on that a hat. Um, You know, what do you think that's going to mean for just your area for you to not only just come up through the organization, but potentially make it to Atlanta
3: someday. I feel like that'll mean a lot. Cause I felt the same way with Jason Hayward from him being yeah. from the same, same area I'm from. Um, just watching him grow through the organization and being, being the player he is now is, is a big inspiration. Like he was my inspiration growing up. And I have a lot of people tell me that I have similar, similar play style to him. So, I don't know if if it just happened because watching him so much or I don't know, but he was a big inspiration growing up because he was from the area and he was so successful going through the organization I love watching.
0: That is really cool. Um, And it's uh, hopefully a a journey that you'll get to start more in earnest in 2021. Michael Harris, the second who you can find on Twitter at Money Mike. And, uh, Michael, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for all the time. Congrats on the success so far. And uh, enjoy the offseason. Take some time to, you know, breathe a little bit. Although I would imagine probably not, you know, while while your big league club is still in the playoffs. I would think that's a little stressful. But, uh, you know, enjoy, enjoy the time away from things. All
3: right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Ben's here. Hi, Ben.
4: Hey, Tyler. <laughs> hey, Sam.
0: Thought that would throw everybody off. It didn't. It didn't get a single I, last week or whenever that was. I guess two weeks ago because I didn't get to talk to you last week. I went right into it and it uh, threw off everybody's mojo. Today, not so much. Yeah, now we're ready for it. You know, we're like
4: good athletes. <laughs> we're ready for anything, and we're ready to you adjust, adjust. whatever the situation.
0: Yeah. You adjust mid podcast at bat. Um, we're doing it on yeah. the phone today because uh, the the internet people have failed you out there. How are things going otherwise?
4: Yeah, I'm, uh, just like the old days. I'm on my phone talking to you guys, staring at my bedroom window. Uh, lost the internet just when we were going to do this segment, and uh, got an email from Optimum saying it's going to be down for several more hours. So now I just don't know what to do with myself. My whole life is tied into the internet. Without the internet, I am nothing.
0: That's lame.
4: I mean, it's something
1: that you say. It's just like the old days when, in the old days, we actually used to do this in person. If you can remember that the real true. old days
4: in the before, <laughs> that's true. There's stages of old days. In the old days, we would gather in the Chelsea Market conference rooms and do this in person. Then we switched offices to uh, uptown in uh, the Avenue of the Americas office, and then the pandemic hit, and we did this on the phone. And then we switched to Zoom. How we are long? Continually. How long were
0: you guys even in the new office before everything went to where we are now?
4: <laughs> How long was it? It was only like uh, a couple of weeks, right? It was the two months. It was at the start of 2020. Okay. okay. Um, so still not, not super long. Uh,
0: but yeah, what, no, uh, it's, about it's quite a time. It's quite a time for all of us, so we're all uh slogging through. Um, well, all that being said, I feel like we kick off with uh, a pertinent story and a really great story, um, to get us started this week that Ben has up on the site right now at Um, and it's one that kind of ties into our current uh state of the world in that the uh the Greenville Drive. The Class A South Atlantic League affiliate of the Boston Red Sox uh, hosted last uh, or a couple of weeks ago now it was back on Saturday, September 22nd um, as part of the state of South Carolina's day of action floor field uh, played host to a ton of different civic engagement um, opportunities. So people could go there and get all kinds of things done. I don't want to rattle them off because I want to give you the floor for that. But this is a really cool thing that Greenville did. Tell us about this day of action at Fluor Fuel.
4: Yeah, this is a story that ran on the site last week. Um, haven't had a chance to talk about it last week uh, because I was on vacation and keeping in with the sign of the times. I was on vacation and didn't go anywhere and um, just hung around in my apartment. That's the way things are these days. But a story came out on Tuesday, like you said, about the Greenville Drives Day of Action, and I wanted to write about that because I do think always, but especially now, it's important to uh, highlight civic engagement in, in, community, in minor league baseball communities and try to think of ways in which minor league teams, you know, via their ballparks, can serve as uh, locations to, you know, better... You know serve the community in terms of you know key things that all of us as citizens need to do or should do so this story with the drive it came about because a couple months ago especially in the wake of uh you know the nba and all their political activism and uh, getting polling sites you know every nba arena made a polling site you know i just asked on twitter i said are any minor league ballparks doing this are we going to see any minor league ballparks as voting sites and you know that tweet got a good reaction because people like the idea but the only response i got uh, from a team was actually well from an individual from Eric Jarenko, the general manager manager of the drive, and he said, "Hey Ben, uh, we're trying to make uh, our ballpark Fluor Field um, a polling site, and uh, they they worked uh, with the county to make that happen. And unfortunately, it fell through uh, just with timing wise. He said that uh, you know, just in terms of notifying people that their new polling location was the ballpark, that there just wasn't time apparently." Um, so that was a little disappointing, but out of those discussions with um, the county and local government, uh, then they got offered the opportunity to host to be the Greenville County location for the statewide day of action, which was happening in every county of South Carolina. So a couple of weekends ago, the ballpark, the Greenville drives ballpark served as a place where you could get a COVID test, where you could register to vote, where you could donate blood, where you could get a real ID uh, from the DMV. Um, where you could complete the census, and it was this one-stop shop for you know your bureaucratic civic needs, and uh, I just thought it was a cool event, and it was cool that how it came about for the drive, and I wrote the story just because it's an idea I want to promote or you know amplify, just um, you know with so many minor teams to to promote the idea that these ballparks, many of which are publicly funded, <clears throat> can serve you know, as these public locations for uh, things that we as citizens need to do or should do.
1: And uh, one of the other things um, that, that you've had come up on the site since we last spoke to you is going to be kind of part of a series here coming up as we look back at, at the last decade. We've done a lot of that this year uh, out of necessity, really, uh, because of, you know, there being no 2020 minor league season and we can't start off this decade. So we've been looking back at at the last one, and you tweeted out uh, just a little while ago that you think this series is kind of important because it's a great way of looking back at promos and um, you know what promos stood out from the, the last decade. So you're going to go be going year by year. It seems like you started out in 2010, and this is a fun one to start with because I feel like a lot of the things that we talk about uh, you know, from a promotional aspect. Uh, Kind of got their start in this year, and then expanded out over you know the ten seasons to come after that. Uh, what stood out to you when you were putting together this piece on 2010 promos?
4: Yeah, it's going to be part of a weekly series um, highlighting every season from 2010 all the way through 2019. Of course, not 2020 because there were no promotions. But just looking back at the highlights of every season, and this is something, especially when I went back to 2010, it, it kind of gave me—I hate to say it—because. I don't know. I feel weird saying it, but it kind of gave me an appreciation of myself just because I realized, like, wow, like I did so much work to chronicle the promotions of uh, all these years going back before 2010. And there's just not really that coverage anywhere else. And it's kind of falls through the cracks otherwise. And, you know, whereas with games and prospects and players. You know, what happened in every game and everyone's stats and, you know, everyone's performance and all the results and outcomes and numbers are all kept track of and accessible. But when it comes to this other aspect of minor, minor league baseball, the promotions and what the teams are doing uh, to get fans in the stands and create attention, you know, that is harder to kind of figure out and look back upon. But yet, to me, this, the way I say that, you know, minor league baseball is a reflection of America, I do feel like looking at the promotions every year, you know, really reflect – reflect America during that time, the pop cultural references, the celebrities who are coming through the ballpark. So looking back through 2010, there was a lot for me to go through. A lot of it is uh, a little hard to go through, you know, just with the gradual erosion and decay of the internet, just like everything in this uh, ephemeral, ephemeral universe. You know, sometimes, you know, when you change formats and publishing systems and uh, blogging platforms, it can be hard to track it all down. But it, it was a gratifying effort to look back at 2010 and be like, oh, wow, yeah, I really gave a lot of coverage to that time that uh, Jose Canseco went to the Arkansas Travelers game and uh, had a pregame boxing match with a 60-year-old man who was uh, kind of a fixture in the local community, uh, assistant athletic director at a local college. You know, that kind of thing, like, wow, Jose Canseco versus Gary Hogan in an Arkansas Travelers game. And, wow, I was giving a lot of publicity to Ted Batchelor, a stuntman whose goal was to get lit on fire in all 50 states. And uh, he was trying to get minor league teams to help him with that. And the first team visited was uh, the now-defunct Savannah Sandmats. And he got lit on fire after a game and circled the bases while on fire. And, you know, that kind of thing. Looking back at some of the celebrity appearances, uh, Peter Mayhew, the guy who played Chewbacca, uh, visited the Oklahoma City Redhawks, and I think you know, with all the Star Wars things that have happened, I think that's the only time that Chewbacca ever visited a minor league ballpark. And I believe that he has since passed away, uh, Peter Mayhew. So that was a, a you know great opportunity to to look back on that, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, it was a lot of fun to to see what some of the giveaways were, you know, including one of my all-time favorites, the Iowa Cubs giving away a bobblehead of a player named Later. You know, just in reference to the player to be named later, the Owl Cubs actually gave away a bobblehead and it's just of a guy named later, uh, stuff like that. And then stuff that was just kind of like, oh, wow, I remember when this got so much publicity, the Brooklyn Cyclones, Ike Davis bobble legs, which was in reference to him getting called up to the Mets, you know, as a rookie phenom and making a series of tumbling catches that got him a lot of publicity. Ten years later, you're like, wow, Ike Davis, and wow, tumbling tumbling catches. But I love that these things exist. And I think this is why people like to collect, to have these kind of obscure items that that really pinpoint these moments in time or these people and places and accomplishments that are easy to forget. And I think with a full decade, you know, from 2010, uh, it's it's a pretty interesting thing to look back upon. Uh, And I found a lot of material. I I think I'll try to share more of it on Twitter because I found more material than I included in the article, including, you know, in the wake of the Lakers winning the championship and, you know, LeBron getting another championship. I found all these 2010 LeBron era promotions. You know, right now, LeBron's number is retired at Canal Park, the home of the Akron Mm -hmm. rubber ducks. But in 2010, the team then called the Akron Arrows. Uh, you know they were mad because LeBron at that point was on the verge of, you know, quote taking his talents to South Beach. So they had a promotion, even though the, now everything's cool with them and LeBron. They had a promotion called, called Ship Out LeBron Night, and they got donations of everyone's like unwanted LeBron jerseys. And uh, that kind of thing, and made a big point of kind of getting rid of it and donating it and saying goodbye, LeBron, get out of here because their feelings were hurt, you know? But now everything's good. And similarly, Lake County, another Ohio team, the captains, they changed the name to the Le Lake County Le Captains, like to honor LeBron and to beg him to stay. It's just funny to look back at that kind of thing.
1: And one I want to touch on real quick um, while we're talking about 2010 is this Will Farrell promotion when he suited up for Round Rock. I know he kind of he did that later, like in spring training. Um, But if you were to tell me at the beginning of the decade, like this was really popular. I remember hearing about it before minor league baseball became my professional life. Uh, It it seemed to touch on so many things. It seems like so many times minor leagues teams, they they see an idea. They try to copy it. Sometimes it, it almost gets run into the ground. Um, but this was never really copied and and done again, except for in spring training when he tried to play for a whole bunch of teams in one day. Um, you know, why was this so successful as a one off?
4: Well, you know, it's one you can't plan for. I mean, every team would love to get Will Farrell to their ballpark to you know assume a alter ego and and create chaos. But that is one that looking back ten years later, you're like, wow, it, it almost seems like one of those things from forty or fifty years ago, and you're like, that would never fly now. Because what happened was Will Farrell was in town to promote a uh, golf tournament to benefit a charity he's involved with, Cancer for College, uh, or College for Cancer. It's a, it's a, it's a cancer-fighting charity, and he was in town for a golf tournament. And he showed up at a, Red, at a Round Rock Express game, and when the top of the sixth inning started, he was introduced as the pitcher, uh, as this alter ego, uh, Billy Ray Rojo, or Rojo Johnson. And so he came out onto the field as the announced pitcher against the Nashville Sounds and uh, toting, a, uh, you know, wearing jewelry, toting a bag of beer, you know, making a whole spectacle. The first batter for the Sounds was not actually a player on the Sounds. It was actually a guy in the Round Rock Express front office. But, you know, he comes to the plate. Uh, Will Farrell as Rojo throws a knockdown pitch. They get in a brawl on the field. Will Farrell's like, throwing beer at him. And this happened in the middle of a AAA Pacific Coast League game. And uh, obviously it went, you know, very viral at the time. And 10 years later, it's one of those legendary things, that time that during a Round Rock Express game, Will Ferrell was called into the game as a pitcher. I mean, none of that's in the box score, but the fact that, you know, from the player development side, from the visiting Nashville Sound side, that everyone signed off on on that event is is pretty cool to totally disrupt a ball game, uh, really for the benefit of an absurd comedy sketch. As I
0: remember it, people didn't really know, right? Like this wasn't a thing where, you know, nowadays, for example, and I love how you uh, referred to him in the story as the spiritual predecessor to Kenny powers. Like if something's being filmed at a ballpark, people are aware of it, but I don't think like round rock fans, this wasn't something that people were aware of that. Oh, in the sixth inning, Will Ferrell's going to come out and like do a little skit. Like this was kind of um, a little bit Borat esque, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It was a total surprise to, uh, to everybody uh in the ballpark you know except for the select few i'm sure the teams knew uh you know the players knew that something was going to happen because they kind of had to have a heads up that the inning wasn't going to start as normal but everyone in the ballpark this was happening in real time this dawning realization of like who is this guy and like is that will ferrell and you know that's got to be a pretty thrilling moment uh you know just to be a random fan going to a Random Round Rock Express game on whatever night of the week it was. I think it was a weekday game. And to see something like that break out is is truly memory. It's truly memorable. You know, minor league baseball creating memories and it's, it's, it's tough to top that one for sure.
0: Uh, Ben, you've also got a piece up on the site, which is, uh, one of the ones that I know our fans really love, uh, you getting a chance to draw on, uh, so many of the ballparks that you've visited and you highlight some of your favorite ballpark features, some of the most unique ballpark features, uh, across the country. And it isn't just, you know, an architectural thing or a fan element or, or something like that. These kind of run the gamut, uh, of everything you could really love about a minor league ballpark.
4: Yeah. Um, this is a piece that came out last week and, uh, you know, the sort of stuff I covered before, but just trying to highlight, you know, especially in the absence of baseball, you know, things we miss that are really specific to different ballparks, um, you know, like uh, Daytona's Jackie Robinson ballpark, you know, kind of having the Jackie Robinson ballpark, you know, museum on the ground of the ballpark. And, of course, that ballpark is named for Jackie Robinson because he spent 1946 spring training there, but to have displays related to his life and times and, uh, you know, things where you can try to, you know, do a, a long jump and see if you can uh, – you know, jump as far as Jackie Robinson did, which, you know, spoiler alert, you, you can't. And, uh, you know, things like that, things like the Simpson statues, at Albuquerque isotopes games, uh, which have their own elaborate backstory in terms of how they got there. And uh, just thinking all across minor league baseball, you know, what kind of features, you know, really stand out and are ultra-specific to that facility. So that's another fun one to write and uh, another one that I hope people check out.
1: And, Ben, before we let you go, um, you know, kind of taking a – a different kind of turn here um, before we wrap up the segment, but you're coming up with a story uh, here that will be live by the time people hear this episode, um, but isn't live currently. So you're still working your way through it. Uh, fort- unfortunately, uh, this has been a, a rough time for, for major league baseball in terms of legends passing away. We've had several in the last couple of weeks, I think five hall of famers have passed away. Joe Morgan uh, being the most recent Uh, the Reds legend and and second baseman for multiple clubs and part of the big red machine. You're bringing together a piece about how these guys got their starts in the minor leagues and and what we can kind of take away from that. What can you tell us about that piece?
4: Yeah, I've been having fun researching this and I'll be on the site uh, on Thursday, the same day this podcast drops, Um, you know, five hall of famers have died in the last two and a half months. And so those guys, you know, Tom Seaver, uh, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Uh, Whitey Ford and Joe Morgan, I just take a look into their minor league careers. And I find it really interesting. I think people will also find it interesting to look back on how these guys' careers started. And, you know, it's just a way to explore minor league baseball history as well. You know, Tom Seaver played his lone minor league season, a member of the 1966 Jacksonville Suns. He made his debut against the Rochester Red Wings, and that team was managed by Earl Weaver. So just to think that three years later, Earl Weaver is managing the Orioles against Tom Seaver's Mets in the 1969 World Series. So just kind of, kind of find like cool threads like that. Um, you know, Joe Morgan was spectacular in the minor leagues. You know, at the time, the uh, it was the Houston Colt 45s, so not the Houston Astros. So he spent the 1964 season with their double-A team that who were named the Bullets because the parent club is the gun. So the San Antonio Bullets were one of the parent clubs. And I had someone on Twitter tell me that one of the Houston Colt 45s Class A teams was called the Colt 22s uh, at one point. <laughs> so a you know, very different time. A lot of uh, uh, Houston Colt 45 gun-related uh, team names all throughout minor league baseball. But looking at, at, at how he did, you know, Bob Gibson was a little interesting because – You know, he spent parts of uh, four seasons in the minors, and, you know, he really kind of had to develop more than most of these guys whose talent was so evident from the beginning. But, you know, in addition to dealing with racial discrimination and, you know, a tough landscape on that front, you know, he'd also hadn't really fully committed himself to baseball until becoming a professional. So it was interesting to see that it's not totally automatic for every guy. And Whitey Ford, the oldest of these guys, you know, he started in 1947 in the minor leagues playing in Butler, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, not too far from pittsburgh and he went on to play for norfolk and the binghamton triplets his season with the binghamton triplets uh he had gotten dysentery playing in mexico during the offseason so uh, he had to join the team late and uh but he helped engineer a kind of worst to first turnaround and won an eastern league championship for the binghamton triplets and so on and so forth i really like kind of digging into this stuff so got an article coming out with uh, kind of capsule reviews or write-ups or just information historical overviews of uh you know, these five Hall of Famers, you know, they're no longer with us. They've met their end, so to speak, but I kind of want to go back to the beginning in terms of their playing careers and uh, see how it all began.
0: Some great stuff up on the site from Ben, as always, you can find it all at MILB.com slash Ben's biz and uh, Ben on Twitter at Ben's biz as well. Um, really great and great stuff. Uh, cranking out all kinds of good off season stories. Thanks, Ben.
4: Hey, thank you guys. Great to talk to you. And as I'm talking to you, like some, Car is driving by, or whatever. There's a real loud music coming. I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm getting inundated from all angles. It's, maybe it's a parade the uh, city. Maybe it is. Who knows what it is? My internet's down. There's loud sounds coming from outside. I got to investigate. Everything's
0: disorienting.
4: It is. Thanks,
0: Ben. Hispanic Heritage Month continues on MILB.com, our Lunes de Legacy series, which is up on the site and has uh, turned out some really, really fascinating stories. And we've got yet another one of those today as we continue shining a spotlight on Hispanic and Latino and Latina and Latinx stories uh, throughout minor league baseball. And Rob Terranova joins the show to talk about his latest piece. Rob, what's going on, man? How are you?
5: Good, good, good. How's everybody doing?
0: We're doing fine, Rob, the uh, the dancingest dude on MILB nightly uh, <laughs> dance breaks on Zoom, and uh, one of our favorite human beings on the planet. Rob's got a great story up on the Thank site you. right now about uh, Hector Espino, who is a uh, uh, Mexican League legend, a guy who uh, was born in Chihuahua and has as many home-run legends and accolades and stories about him uh, as a guy probably could in a baseball life to the point that he is known as the Babe Ruth of Mexico and uh, played in a 24-year career that ended 36 years ago. And just an amazing story. I mean, this is uh, a story that I would say most baseball fans north of the border are probably not familiar with because he did not cross over. And that was kind of one of the key themes that you hit is what if, what if he had come to the States and what if he had tried to do this in Major League Baseball? This is a really interesting story. Tell us about Hector.
5: So yeah, really fascinating guy. Like I said, a, a legacy that that is the more I uncovered it, the more I was just astounded by what I found. Uh, here's a guy with this incredible reputation in Mexico, where they say that the level of baseball is kind of like Triple A, kind of on that level, and he just murdered baseball. Uh, and that's kind of one of it. that was one of his nicknames, El Nino Asino, which was uh, the Kid Killer. And and at first, someone hears that they're like, wait, what? And then he had a baby face, and he just killed baseball.
0: That is so a phenomenal nickname. <laughs> yeah.
5: So, uh, So, yeah. So, he just, wherever he, wherever he played, wherever he went, he just hit the hell out of, hit the, hell, hit the, hell out of the ball. And uh, I spoke to two different people uh, and just did a ton of research on this. And there's still a debate about if he would have succeeded in the big leagues. Uh, there, there is one whole side that says, you know, he didn't have the skill or he didn't have, the, scaler, he didn't have the, the makeup or the character to keep up with major league pitching. So that's why he went back. And then there's another side, and one guy I spoke to specifically Mike Brito, who's uh, a still a, a another scout, legend. Another legend. Yes. Mike Brito, legend. everyone
0: m- may remember, Mike Brito is the Panama hat cigar scout that you used to see behind the plate at Dodger Stadium back in like the 80s and 90s. That's Mike Brito.
5: Yes. And he, of course, is famous for discovering Fernando Valenzuela and bringing him to the States. And Julio Arias as well. And Julio, yes, that's and right. And
0: I believe Yasiel Puig too, but Valenzuela was the one who
5: put him on the, on the map. Right, yeah, exactly. So, so talking to him, and by the way, fantastic interview. There, there were, that, that interview required a lot of editing because he did not edit himself when he was talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of a lot of not safe for work language, um, but uh, it was it was fantastic. Just a great guy, and uh, he, he actually spoke two or three different times because I, with every story he would tell me, he's like he's like, "Oh, my wife's getting mad at me. She's she's looking at me funny. We got to we got to continue this later, Rob. Let's talk. Let's talk tomorrow." So I was like, "All right, Mike, you got it." <laughs> so it was really just a, just a fantastic uh, story, and just just a great conversation with him, and he swears. He said, this guy would have been uh, uh, one of the best hitters in the major leagues. One thing he said to me that stood out was, he goes, other than Ted Williams, he can't think of a better hitter that he saw in his life wow. than, um, hmm. than, than Espino. And so, yeah, the, the, obviously the debate is on. We'll never know. But, uh, yeah, what, what, what might have been if he decided, when he came to the States for five weeks, if he decided to stay?
1: Right and and you get into that in the piece you even quote Joe Mor- Morgan the former Red Sox manager not the recently passed away Hall of Famer but you quote Joe Mor- Morgan in here about why things didn't work out during Espino's time in Jacksonville what kind of insight did you get about you know his dallian State side um you know why it didn't extend longer
5: Yep uh, Joe was another great guy to talk to um and uh he give me some like he, like he just said, he gave me some insight into just his conversations with Hector. He says, you know, uh, the team in Jacksonville was notified that, hey, guys, we're having this, this guy come join the clubhouse. He's the Babe Ruth of Mexico. So there's a lot of hype coming in. Uh, and then he said, you know, it just didn't work out. And he said a, a few different times, he tried to talk to Hector and just see what was going on with him, just try to help him get acclimated to, to the States and, and to the clubhouse and just basically just be a friend. He said Hector's English wasn't very good. There was a there was a really bad uh, language barrier. Um, and he said that he just never seemed comfortable. Um, one of the things he told me was he, he never seemed like he was himself. It, the feeling he got was that he didn't want to be there. Uh, a few other theories I read uh, in my research was, you know, racism was really prominent at that time, uh, and he was he was also kind of victimized by that uh, while he was in Jacksonville. So uh, there's there's definitely a few factors that um, played into him not really gelling in the States. But, you know, he still hit 300. So there's something to be said about that.
1: Hmm. No, for sure. And you also get into this a little bit in the piece as well, is how much of this was him just wanting to be a Mexican league star? I mean, we don't talk about the league that much here, but in Mexico, it's incredibly well known. It's well followed. It's pretty large fan bases. It's a fun place to play. Uh, How much did that just drive his decision of, like, I'm a star here. Why would I ever leave?
5: Exactly. Exactly. So uh, Mike swears that the reason he was in the States was a contract dispute. He was supposed to get uh, basically 15% of the deal that his Mexican uh, league team signed with the Cardinals. He was supposed to get 15% of that. They didn't want to give it to him. They said, but if you go play for the state, if you go play in the States, you're going to make so much more money. So that's, that's how you'll get your money back. And he was, he was a man of principle. Uh, Something that Mike told me about after games, when they played together, they were roommates. And he said, you know, we'd go out, we'd have some drinks. Um, and Hector always stayed inside. He listened to music. He kept to himself. He was a really serious guy. And he said he was a guy of principle. He didn't, he didn't fool around. So uh, the belief there is that if, if the money was, was a matter of principle. It was, you're, you're gonna give me my worth and this is my worth. And he didn't feel the pressure to complain uh, the, in the States because like you just said, he was a hero in Mexico. He could go anywhere. Um, and people recognized him, and they admired him, and they respected him and his family. Uh, they were basically treated like royalty wherever they went. So he didn't—he he had no incentive to leave. Um, and what, one, one of the things that I thought was crazy: while he was still playing for his winter league team, they named a stadium after him. So that just goes wow. to show you—that just goes to show you what kind of uh, reputation and character he was uh, in his home country.
0: That is pretty incredible. He uh, did the majority of his work as a, a professional in the Mexican League with Monterey and with Tampico but, I mean, played really all over uh, Saltillo, Union Laguna, uh, Monclova. When you – get to write about somebody like this, Rob, it's, it's so interesting because we're coming at it from a standpoint of not knowing a lot about him. Um, but he is, you know, known as the, the Mexican Babe Ruth and he's a legend there. Did you get a sense of what his legacy is still like there? I mean, I know Monterey is the home of the the Mexican baseball hall of fame. And so obviously uh, a guy who is honored uh, in that institution and played his ball, a stone's throw away from it. Um, in Monterey and and made such a big impact on the game of baseball. Do you get a feeling for what he still means to baseball down there today?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Like I just mentioned, uh, that his winter league team, uh, that named the stadium after him. Uh, Every year uh, they always mention, um, they always honor that date. It was pretty recent. I think it was October 5th that they changed the the stadium to his name. So every October 5th uh, they honor that and they honor him um, obviously now that he's passed away. Uh, so, so he's still very much uh, relevant there. And just, just in s- some articles I read, uh, even, even some stuff from some Mexican baseball blogs, there's still a lot of stories about, and, until this day, if you get into a cab in Mexico and mention his name, they will tell you stories about him. Wow, um, that's, that, that's the kind of legacy he left behind there.
0: That is really cool stuff. Um, Hector Espino, you can read this story at MILB.com from our good buddy Rob Terranova. Uh, Hector did pass away in 1997, um, but just an amazing story, which is up on the site. And if you are not familiar with it, um, it's a really good one. And this is such a perfect time of year, too, to dive into these stories because, I mean, obviously um, there's a, a swath of us, a wide swath of us that always love the historical ones. But there's something about, you know, the the Major League postseason and, Leagues getting started, uh, you know, during normal years uh, across the the globe for winter ball. Although the the Mexican Pacific Winter League is getting started, um, but this is always such a cool time of year to kind of reflect on legacies like this. And this is a great piece, Rob. Nice job as always.
5: Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.
0: Final segment on this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to Michael Harrison, Rob Terranova, and Benjamin Hill. Sam has our nationwide prospect fact of the week.
1: Yeah. So this one I teased out at the beginning that I would have a Randy Arizona fact. Uh, Here is that Randy Arizona fact. One thing I've really been impressed with him during this postseason run is his ability to hit the ball hard. You know, he's picking up all these hits. We, We said he's hitting 400 plus. He's reaching base at least half the time uh, through the, this Tampa Bay, you know, push towards the, the world series. Um, and that's great. But sometimes in a small sample like that, you can dink and dunk your way. He's hitting the ball hard a lot. And that's what we're going to get into here. So during the regular season, like I said, he was, he was a late season call up, but still got more than 10 games during the regular season. Uh, he had an exit velocity, of 100 miles an hour or more. That's not rounding. It literally has to start with 100 miles an hour or more, 16 times. Pretty good. During the postseason, again, a, a shorter run against tougher competition, he's hit the ball at 100 miles an hour or more, again, exactly 16 times. <laughs> it's, it's so – per. I love that so much. Again, Amazing. that could change by the time you guys hear this. And if it has changed, it's because he's actually had an exit velo of 100-plus more. Uh, that that we're not going to take any away from that 16. If anything, it's going to go to 17 or 18. Um, But just to show you what he's doing here, these are not cheap hits. Uh, These are loud all over the field, home runs, doubles. He's got a triple in there as well. Uh, He is a big reason why the Tampa Bay Rays are are this close to the World Series and maybe even in the World Series by the time you hear this. Um, Again, we'd love to see what happens with him going forward, there's not much in his profile that tells me he's always going to be this dangerous of a hitter. Um, but if the the Statcast numbers back up, you know, the the numbers on his player page, then that's a strong argument for, hey, this could last a while, and, and the Rays could have really something special in here beyond the 2020 postseason. And
0: remember, he's their number 19 prospect. So there's a lot of talent in that Tampa Bay system, which is ridiculous. Um, but until next week, uh, when we will be into the World Series, we will know that matchup and uh, and all of it. You may know it by tonight and tomorrow. Um, by the time we talk to you next, we'll have uh, a lot more fun baseball to talk about. So enjoy watching the remainder of the LCS. And for Sam Dykstra, around am Tyler Mon. We'll talk to you next week.